As, as Pastor Nick already alluded to, I am one of the elders here, and I'm in the business of dropping all the pens and pencils down. Um, I, I really appreciate what Jake brought this morning. Um, he, he, had, he had made a mention multiple times of Putin and his heart situation. And as I've been praying about what to bring as a subject this morning, because we're going to take a break from the Hebrew study, and we're going we're to look at a different subject altogether this morning. And as I've been praying about it, the subject of discipleship came up, um, I think for obvious reasons, because our mission here at Timberline is revolved around the subject of discipleship. And as I've been praying about what passage to bring, it was the parable of the sower that God brought to mind. And it's popularly known as the parable of the sower. If you have the ESV version of the Bible, the title of it will say the parable of the sower. But um, may I be so bold to say that this passage is not actually revolving around the sower. Uh, Nor is it revolving around the seed, because it's not the sower who changes people. It's not the seed that changes people. It's the soil. And in Matthew, it talks about the soil being the heart of an individual. And so it really strikes a chord with me, Jake, what you're sharing, because when we talk about people's heart situation, um, we're going to be talking about the soil this morning and what discipleship looks like in terms of the soil I had a brother who, who called me this morning. I work with him. He's, he's, I'm an engineer by trade. I've got a brother in Christ who's also an engineer in trade, and he knew that I was going to be bringing the subject of discipleship, and he was particularly excited about this passage, and he did, he did associate this passage with what's going on in Ukraine, and he mentioned that what, what's happening right now between Russia and Ukraine actually is evidence that there is a soil issue going on in the world, that people have hardened their hearts towards God's word. Um, They've chosen to reject what it is that God offers to us as his wisdom, and instead they're leaning on their own understanding, they're leaning on the understanding of the world rather than the word of Christ. Furthermore, there was a a man that I met with yesterday, another brother in Christ who I work with, he's a hydro project manager, and and I had made a mention to him about three months ago, and I said, you know, you've got leadership, you've got leadership capabilities. Um, God has, has given you leadership capabilities, and And so I I exhorted him, and I just emphasized the need for him to step up as a leader among the workplace as a Christian brother, and he came to me yesterday as we were having supper together, and he made the mention, I don't want there to be any pretense, Ozan. Um, I I don't think I'm I'm as, as much of a leader as you think I am. And that struck a chord with me, because what it suggests to me is that there are people in the church who are not living up to their full potential. And so my response to him was, oh, brother, you have no idea how much God has truly blessed you with. And so one of the functions of the church really is to come alongside other brothers and sisters to exhort them to to share the sort of giftings that God has given them to accomplish such great and awesome things that God has in store for us. And so that's what I intend to bring this morning. Uh, Before I get into the word and the reading of the word, I do want to make a mention of this. I've been praying for the last um, two weeks over this subject. And the sort of message that I'm going to bring, it, it can come off as very strong. Um, it can come off as very um, in your face, but there's also a gentle aspect that's attached to it. And I just want to, I just want to emphasize the reality that, that my attitude coming here this morning is that of love for God, first and foremost. Secondly, it is a love for you. 
And so what I bring to you is not, I'm not here to shame anybody. I don't have any particular person in mind as I preach the words of the gospel that I bring to you this morning. It's strictly coming out of love for God's word, a love for his church, because personally, I don't think the church is living up to what it is that God has called the church to live up to. There are people, like my brother in Christ yesterday, who say, I'm not as capable as you think I am, and he couldn't have been further from the truth, because he has the spirit of Christ living in him. So with that, I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be looking at the parable of the sower. We're in Mark chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. I'm reading out of the ESV. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And he sowed. Some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding, listen to this, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold, which is a lot. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear and not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. There are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Yes, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Let's pray. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, may we treasure it up in our hearts as we, as we dig through this parable, which uh, the, the, the illustration has already been revealed to us. Jesus has very plainly told us what this parable means. So may as we go through this word, may you, may you be in our hearts and in our minds and our souls. May you offer to us the convictions that need to be there. For those who are actively ministering, Lord, may you encourage them all the more in what it is that they're doing. And Lord, may you be among us, your body, your people, uh, that we would adequately portray the body of Christ. And we sang it this morning that we would hold that candle high, that that light would be lit to the world, that people would witness and see the very act of your church body as a representation of Jesus Christ. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a message on discipleship, and I'm very thankful that I get to be a part of a community that is pastored by a man who just represents, he embodies everything there is to say about discipleship. 
Um, you know, when, when I look at the work of Jesus Christ and then I look at the work of Paul, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. He, he, is, he is the personification of Jesus, Jesus being the personification of the deity. And now in this world today, we have pastors like, like Pastor Nick who personifies that sort of attitude. I'm very thankful to be a part of this community. And I get to say that with confidence, you know. This is one of the benefits of having other people come up and share the message. You, you really get to emphasize that thing, you know, and it's not to butter them up. And it's not to say that he's perfect. It's not to say he's got everything figured out. Um, but I'm very thankful that I get, to, I get to come alongside a pastor who represents the very thing that we're going to be talking about this morning. And I want to start by asking you a question. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? And it seems like a very simple question to ask. And I have asked a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ what that is. And I do get a flurry of many answers. And I don't think we've, we've, we've settled down and asked ourselves this simple question, what is a disciple? Um, if, you, if you've come to the conclusion a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ, I think, I think you're right. But I think there's more to it than just being a follower of Jesus Christ, as we will look at in a moment. What does it mean to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Not just a church member or a tender, but a member of the body of Christ. The Holy Catholic Communion the body of Jesus Christ. Not an attender, but an active participant in God's kingdom. Not a self-proclaimed Christian, but one who is declared justified by God himself. Not one who simply associates themselves with Christians, but associates themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not one who can recite the Bible front to back and have it all memorized, but one who has the indwelling word of God living inside of him or her. Where do you stand in relationship to the cross? It's one thing to be in this building. And it's an entirely different thing to be in the arms of Jesus Christ. It's one thing to be lined up in seats. It's a whole other thing to be lined up behind the Lord Jesus Christ. Every born-again believer, as we will see this morning, as you already know, is a disciple of Jesus Christ. There, there, are, there are no bench seats in the kingdom of God. I mean, we, we don't sit on the bench and then, and then wait for someone to make the call and then that person who's active comes and sits down and the one who's sitting down comes and then participates actively. No, it's much different in the kingdom of God. Everybody has a very active role in the kingdom of God. You, yes, have a very active role in performing the function that God has called you to share. I remember back in the day, this was around the time when I first met my wife, I, I had never gone backpacking. Um, I am a city slicker of city slickers. I'm just going to confess to you. I probably don't even fit in with half of you because of that. You know, already you dismissed me now <laughs> as a friend. But my wife got me into it, you know. And, uh, and, and by God's grace, she chose to stay with me, even though I am a city slicker. And so she, she plugged me into a ministry um, where it's a discipleship ministry. And, and it, as a part of the four days that I was there in that ministry, they provided us with a map. And it was an outdated map. And they had planted a treasure um, with, with chocolates in it because we had not had candy for like days, you know. And so I'm just giving you up front the, the treasure. But, our, the, 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 tre- the, but the, the mission was to go and find this treasure with this outdated map. And as we traversed through the terrain, there were times where things were really comfortable. Like there were these wide paved roads. And you're walking around, around it and you, you're thinking that you're actually on track. But the reality is you're not. And what they did as a part of this ministry is they put yellow flags up to inform you that you're on the right track. And what I noticed was every time I found myself on the comfortable path, the one where it's like, this is so easy, I could get used to this, there wasn't a yellow flag to be found. 
But as, as we traversed it and as we said, you know what, let's just try and take this path here because I think we're, we're kind of off north or whatever, you would eventually come across these yellow flags and you would just get so excited because you know you're on the right track. And then there were the red flags. And the red flags were, were very distinct and, and out there and in your face. And what they represented was a, a, a steep drop-off. And if you were to continue to walk down this path, you will fall to your death. Like, literally, you will die, you know. And so, and so you, we, 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 we paid very close attention to the red flags. And why is it that I share this story with you? Because the walk with God is very similar. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate. There is a narrow gate that we've been called to enter. For the gate is wide and the way is easy, listen to this, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And mind you, he's talking to a religious people. He's talking to people like you and me who already associate ourselves in relationship with Jesus Christ. And this comes after a grand invitation by Jesus Christ. So I'm going to be asking us to stand at the narrow gate this morning. I'm going to place you at the narrow road, the road that's less traveled. And, and, and there is a strong possibility and, and, and listen to my heart in this, that there are those here this morning who associate yourself as a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you don't truly know him. There are some of you here today who think you're saved, and the reality is that you're not. You have been prescribed Christian vocabulary and jargon, but you haven't received the real deal. You've been introduced to a false view of what Christianity is, and you've either walked an aisle, or you've raised a hand, or you've signed a certificate but in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, you may not actually know him. And I'm not saying this to strike fear in you. And again, I don't have a particular person in mind. If anything, this community of believers has really exemplified what discipleship is like. But if there is a narrow gate, and there are those who associate themselves with Jesus Christ, confused over the reality that he would send them away, then there is a strong possibility that among this congregation, there are people in here who don't actually know the Lord Jesus Christ. You've not arrived at the place where you're ready to give yourself fully because you don't fully understand who Jesus Christ is. For those of you who associate with the Lord Jesus Christ, but you've stopped short of understanding that Jesus is everything, that there is no other way, there's no one who is more valuable in the universe than the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to hear what Jesus says, what it will take to enter into the narrow gate. I pray that God will move you from just a mere tender and a person in a crowd to becoming an active participant, a blood-bought follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, I know and I trust that there are many in here who actually have a strong and caring relationship with Jesus Christ. You've dedicated your life, you understand, and you accept the cost of discipleship. For you, I encourage you to be all the more radically encouraged in Jesus Christ. Because there is no such thing as an undercommitted Christian... Now, I have to be very careful when I say that because there are times where there is ministry burnout. And what's happening in that moment is not somebody who's overcommitting themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want you to understand that. There is no such person who overcommits themselves radically to the Lord Jesus Christ because when you commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, your family is a part of that ministry. And so what happens as you, as you step your family aside is you're actually walking away from Jesus Christ in that moment. You're not overcommitting yourself to Jesus Christ. So I want to make sure that there is a fine line there. And so I want to encourage you, and for those of you who are walking in Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to deepen that relationship with him.
The terms that I'm going to lay out this morning, they are non-negotiable. These are not my words. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are fixed. They are unalterable. And they are for each and every one of us. The terms that is set by the Lord Jesus Christ are not mine. They are his. You see, Jesus never tried to seduce a crowd. Jesus never tried to manipulate decisions. He never tried to water down the message uh, in a way that would just result in people going, okay, I kind of like what I'm hearing, and now I'm going to make my way towards it. And nor did he keep the hard part for the fine print, you know? Why don't you come into a relationship with me, and then I will tell you what it actually costs to be a disciple. No, Jesus very much up front tell people what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He makes it very clear. He calls for a total commitment of the soul. Jesus calls for a total and radical submission and surrender to Jesus Christ. Or, in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be his disciple. This is particularly significant here at Timberline. Because our mission revolves around this concept of discipleship. We come here every Sunday and we we come before the congregation and we say our mission is to make disciple makers. That, That means that you are being discipled, yes. It also means that you are discipling others because you're not just becoming a disciple, you're making disciples in the process, which means God is doing something in that moment. We have embraced discipleship as a core function in this church and we know through God's word that his mission is not just reserved for a select few, but all of us have a part in it. There are no bench seats, like I said, in the kingdom of God. Churches will have visions and they'll have missions, but the mission has been set by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that's what we're going to embrace this morning. In fact, the greatest spiritual commission that God has given us is his great commission. And I know we're all familiar with this. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. This is what Jesus has to say. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore... Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age. Jesus is speaking to his very own disciples, and he has spent years devoting himself to them. Very little is actually said within this passage of what it means to make disciples, right? It begs the question, what does discipleship look like? What are, who are the disciples? How are disciples made? And there is a pet peeve of mine among the congregation because we oftentimes will associate discipleship with your spiritual gifts. Let me just give you an illustration. I've been provided with the gift of preaching. And so if, if, if that's how God has chosen to gift me, and I go to somebody and I say the proper way to disciple somebody is to get in front of a very large crowd, speak very loudly, and boldly proclaim the word of God, that's the only way that you can disciple I think I'm doing a great disservice to the community because God has gifted each and every one of us to perform the function of the body of Christ. There's no part of the body that is less valuable than another part of the body. And so whatever your gift is, God is going to use that as a form of discipleship, yes, even with you. And to help us understand what discipleship making means, we have to understand that there are other gospel accounts. See, Matthew is not the only one who who, who actually recorded the Great Commission. It's also recorded to us in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, and this is what he has to say. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. There's an element there, isn't there, that's rolled into this discipleship-making concept to proclaim the gospel. What is the gospel that we are to proclaim? 
Luke chapter 24, verse 46 to 47. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that, listen to this, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What a tall order to ask in our society that one would come to a recognition that they are sinners and must repent. But you know what? Jesus is saying that is the gospel message. Coming to a state of understanding your sin and repenting before God and placing your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's good news in that. Additional clarity is added in the gospel of John as he talks about the forgiveness of sins. In John chapter 20, verse 21, 22, it says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent him, he is sending us. And then in John chapter 18, verse 37, Jesus said, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Okay, there's a lot that's rolled into this, and so I really want to sum this up for you in my own words. If I could just consolidate everything that we just looked at in those gospel accounts, it would look something like this. By the authority of God. By the authority of God. Bear witness to the truth as Jesus bore witness to the truth. Go and make disciples by proclaiming the gospel message, repentance for forgiveness of sins received in Christ alone, and teach them to follow and obey all that Jesus has commanded. Now that's a mouthful, okay? And we're going to narrow this down as we, as we continue to look at this passage. This is such a tremendous and glorious reality that we have received forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, he, he's inviting us now to participate in the salvation work of God. And as you participate in the salvation work of God, what God inevitably does is he either grows a person in a relationship with Jesus Christ or he saves the person. And whatever the situation is in your own life context, there's a marvelous reality excitement that comes with that when you see somebody actually coming to a further understanding that Jesus is number one, Jesus is preeminent. Allow me to illustrate the gospel demonstration to you by way of a question. What is required of a person to be in the presence of a perfect and holy God? What is required of a person to be in the presence of a perfect and holy God? I go out and I will do door-to-door evangelism occasionally. And and there is a complex out there um, that exists, and it is a real complex. Because when you come to people and you ask them what the relationship looks like, there are some who will say, I am a Christian. And those are the ones that I particularly attach myself to. Because I'll ask them the follow-up question, inevitably, what does that mean to you to be a follower of Jesus Christ? In other words, how do you know that you are going to enter in the eternal presence of God? And the answer, 95% of the time, I'm not making this up. Go and try this for yourself. Is because I am a good enough person. Because I'm a good enough person, right? At which point we will pull out the Ten Commandments and we will test that. And very quickly we come to the understanding that um, not only are we a good per- uh, not a good person, but we are terribly depraved. Like there's no good in us. So then how does anybody 
come to the righteousness of God. I'm reminded of Isaiah in chapter 6. Remember when, when he's faced with God and his robe is filling the temple and there are angels who are flying around him and they're singing, holy, holy, holy. And then Isaiah comes to the understanding that he is actually before the Lord and he says, I am ruined. How can anyone like me with unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips, be among a God who is as holy, as righteous as, as him? And then remember the coal touches his tongue and he says, your sins have been atoned for. There is a great need that exists among people by which our sins must be forgiven in order for us to be among a holy and gracious God. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 17 says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And I would be the first to confess among the entire congregation that I have broken every single one of God's ten commandments. Every single one of them. And if you're concerned about the one about murder, the Bible says even if your heart has a murderous attitude behind it, you are as guilty as a murderer. I didn't actually murder somebody in the sense that you might think, okay? So. <laughs> and so I'm ruined. There, there, I can't be among a perfect and holy God if I'm imperfect. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, if you relax even one of God's commandments, a white lie, you become guilty of all of it. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. Um, our current day saying is, he dots all his I's and he crosses all of his T's. There is not a speck of the law that is left out in God's grand plan. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of God. Now, this is an extremely profound statement when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Because if you are in the culture of that time, who are the most righteous people in all the world then during that time? The scribes and the Pharisees. And so any average normal person who's listening to this and hears those words, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, they're thinking, how then can anyone be righteous enough before God? We are an imperfect people, and we are faced with what we call the divine dilemma. And the way in which you receive your presence in the eternal kingdom of God is perfection. There's nothing short of perfection that's required. Which means that either you meet the Ten Commandments perfectly, which nobody in this room does. God's word tells us that. Or you have to receive forgiveness and atonement for your sins, which is offered through Jesus Christ. You see, God took our sins and he transferred them to the innocent lamb of God and Jesus bore our sins in his body and the father crushed him, as it says, on the cross and he was pleased in that sacrifice. And Jesus shed his blood and he made atonement for sin. And at the end of it, he said, it is finished. It's done. Everything that Jesus set to accomplish on the cross has been accomplished. There is nothing that you can bring to the cross that will contribute anything to your eternal salvation. Not a penny, not a good deed will contribute to your salvation because Jesus has paid it all. 
We are no longer striving to live by our own merits, but living by the merits of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At some point we have to accept the reality that we are sinners, and our sinners separate us from a perfect and holy God. We are in desperate need of a Savior. God spares us, and he invites us into God's righteousness. We have received righteousness now apart from the law in the perfect one, Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly for you and for me. Perhaps there are some of those in here who are hearing this message the first way this time, and you're formulating a picture of Jesus that you haven't considered yet. Why am I sharing all this with you? Why is this important to the subject of discipleship? Because discipleship starts with a sincere and reverent relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, it wouldn't make any sense for you just to skip straight to discipleship if you don't have the foundation that's been set before you to be one in Christ. A sincere and genuine understanding will result in Jesus becoming preeminent and number one in your life. A general disciple is a learner. But one who is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is a learner of the Lord Jesus Christ and the chief end of all discipleship. Look, whether you're, whether you're pre- presenting the message to an unbeliever for the first time or a seasoned saint for the millionth time, it, the, the same concept holds true. A disciple is one who invites people into making Jesus Christ preeminent, making Jesus Christ number one in their life. Are all who call themselves disciples of Jesus Christ actually disciples of Jesus Christ? This is a very important question that we have to ask ourselves. If I say that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, how can I know that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ? This brings me to the first point in your bulletin, if you're following along, the imitation of a disciple. This is a disciple who imitates. A self-proclamation as a disciple has very little to do with whether you're actually a disciple. And if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and let's look at this. I consider this to be one of the most sobering reminders in all the scripture. You know, and I'm not alone on this. Verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Two things strike me in in the reading of this passage. One is they sincerely and genuinely thought they had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Did we not do these things in your name? Secondly, they're saying, Lord, Lord. When there's a name that's mentioned twice, there's an emphasis that's placed in that. There's a a term of endearment that's rolled into that. So when they're saying, Lord, Lord, they're associating themselves very closely with the Lord Jesus Christ. I remind you of Paul when he was saved on the road, remember? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, Jesus was associating himself with Paul in that moment. He was saying, Saul, Saul. And in the same way, there are people who are saying, Lord, Lord. They're associating themselves very strongly with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was very aware of those in his earthly ministry who were his true disciples. 
versus those who simply associated themselves as disciples. Turn with me to John chapter 6. And starting in verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And listen to this in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? A very hard teaching now being brought by Jesus. And then in verse 60, listen to this. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then in verse 66, listen to this. After this, many of his disciples did what? They turned back. And they no longer walked with Jesus Christ. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon answered on behalf of them. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's no one else. There's only you. You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And yet, verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Not all who associate themselves as a disciple of Jesus Christ are indeed a disciple of Jesus Christ. What do, what do we say to all this? Like, What do we make of all this? Well, it is this, that Jesus isn't just simply some accessory in your tool belt. You don't just whip him out occasionally and say, all right, it's Jesus time now. No, Jesus is life itself. You see, we have it, we have it wrong because you are actually in the tool belt. Jesus is actually using you, not the other way around. Jesus is altogether preeminent. A disciple is one who recognizes Jesus as life itself. And he or she has concluded that Jesus is preeminent. There is no one else. There is no other value among all valuable things in this, in this world that you will find who exceeds the Lord Jesus Christ. Discipleship then boils down to one simple command, doesn't it? Invite others into making Jesus Christ preeminent. You see, if there's a definition that you want to write down for discipleship, it is this. Discipleship is inviting other people into making Jesus Christ preeminent. You see, when I go to an unbeliever and I preach the gospel to an unbeliever, I am making Jesus Christ preeminent. I'm saying there's no one else. There's only Jesus. When I'm presenting and discipling one who's been seasoned in God for years and years, the same message holds true. Do you see Jesus is number one in your life? It's not sufficient that you say, you don't understand, Ozon. I'm not the person you think I am. Because I'm not the one who determines that. God determines that. And there are so many people among the church who are not stepping up and fulfilling their God-given ministries, me included. This is a message for all of us that we need to hear. 
This brings me then to my second point in your notes, the invitation. What does an invitation of a disciple look like? And Mark chapter 8 gives us a very clear illustration of what that is. Mark chapter 8, and starting in verse 34, and there are parallel accounts in Matthew chapter 16 and Luke 9 as well, if you want to turn there. Again, Jesus perceives that not all who are among the group are true followers, so he makes it crystal clear what it's going to take to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. This invitation dismantles any self-effort. Any self-centered invitation just went out the window completely. This is not an invitation to health, wealth, prosperity. This is not an invitation to a self-boosted image or trouble-free living. No, this is an invitation, rather, of self-denial. This is an invitation of cross-bearing obedience towards the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Lord's invitation to any who would call themselves a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think that this is an isolated event, think again. Jesus' invitation is always, mark this, it's always accompanied with a cost. There's always a cost with discipleship. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said, Think not that I have come to bring peace, but a sword. Whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. I know this sounds strange because Jesus came to bring peace. So why then would Jesus come into the world and say, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword? You see, the context is, when you have a loving relationship with Jesus Christ, it, just, it divides everything. There's Jesus, and then there's everyone else. There's Jesus, and then there's your circumstance. There's Jesus, and then there's the way you ought to live. You see what I'm saying? Jesus came to bring a sword. There are people who are truly his disciples, and then there are those who are not. It's black and white in the, Lord's, in the, in the eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 14, he uses even stronger language. If you don't hate your mother or father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, such a person, listen to this, cannot be my disciple. Now, like, he's not saying go and resent your parents. He's not saying resent your brothers and sisters and wife and all that stuff and, like, literally hate them. That's not what he's, he's creating a hyperbole. He's saying in light of the value that Jesus Christ brings in your life, they become, like, meaningless. Yes, even your own life becomes meaningless when you know the Lord Jesus Christ. The invitation to discipleship is not an easy one. It will cost you your life. Lose your life, be born again. That is the requirement that Jesus has set forth for all of us. There are three major points that I want you to take away from verse 34 in this passage. The first one is this. Disassociate yourself. This is a person who says, I realize my sinfulness. I cannot earn righteousness before God. I abandon any self-effort. My works righteousness system, all self-effort. I abandon my own agenda, my own plans. This is a person who gives up independence and trusts strictly in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They give up their self and they place full confidence and dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a person of faith. Full confidence and trust being placed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, a proud Christian wants Christ and personal pleasure. We want Christ and personal purpose. We want Christ and personal possessions. We want Christ and personal sin. On the other hand, there's the person who is crushed under the weight of their own sin. This is like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, I think it is, remember? Where he's pounding his chest and he's just seeking forgiveness from God because there's nothing he can do. Only God can deliver him from his helpless situation. You want to come to Christ? Deny yourself. Second is this, take up your cross. Now look, the cross is very familiar to us. We look back and we see Jesus Christ on the cross. This was during... Uh, an age where the cross now is a form of capital punishment and, and the disciples, they have limited idea of whether Jesus is actually going to be placed on the cross. And, and so Jesus says, take up your cross. There could, there could only be one thing they're thinking in this moment. Death by crucifixion. Right? Not, not only deny yourself, but take up your cross. This is a willingness to endure persecution, even to death if necessary. I think this might be a good time to pause and ask the question, if the church was faced with persecution today, your life was literally on the stake. Where would you be? Where, wh- what sort of activity would you be involved in? Where would you be hiding? Or where would you be proclaiming? I think it's a question that we should all consider. Honestly, I don't know where I would be. I don't know how I would respond to that. But I do know one thing that a disciple of Jesus Christ is willing to take up their cross and deny themselves, even if it means to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look, either Jesus is so valuable that you would give up everything to receive him, or he's not. You will not find an invitation to discipleship in the Bible that doesn't require complete self-abandonment. And I want you to hear me on this because the gospel is never offered on the basis of what your sinful flesh already desires. The gospel is never offered on the basis of what your sinful flesh already desires, which means this whole concept of Christ and my sin, it must go out the window. The gospel, if offered on the basis of whether Jesus is enough value to give up everything for, is, is, is at the root of the heart of an individual. If you're unwilling to give it all, then you don't fully understand who Jesus Christ is, and you're caught up in the temporal world. You're caught up in the temporal circumstances of this world. Look, we've got limited time between now and the time Jesus Christ comes back to do the work of the evangelist. And it says work of evangelist. Like, it's not an easy thing. It doesn't just come to you and then you just flow with it. It means there's actually an aspect of self-denial and taking up your cross that comes with this concept of discipleship. And third and finally, it is this, loyal obedience. Jesus says, follow me. This isn't like obligation. It's not a threat. Jesus doesn't say, follow me or else. You're going to get it. No, a disciple gladly and willingly follows the Lord Jesus Christ. We find such delight, Psalm 119, in the words of Jesus Christ, in the law of God. We don't use it as a means of salvation, but it becomes to us immeasurable because it's God's goodness revealed to us in this time. 
Loyal obedience is evidence or fruit, as I like to call it, of a heart transformation, which brings me to my last point in your bulletin. You've probably been wondering, when are you going to talk about the parable? All right, here it is. I know, I, I get in that mode sometimes, right? Like, your text is this. Get to it already, you know? Um, but there's so much that needed to be said to lead up to this point, because discipleship isn't any small subject that you can wrap up into just a single passage of Scripture. Mark chapter 4, verse 1 to 20. Failure to understand this parable has led to wholesale destruction in the church, in my opinion. It poses a serious risk to the health of, of our community, to the health of discipleship. There's foolishness and illegitimate strategies that people are creating in terms of the subject of discipleship. I don't think the American church, if I may say it like that, has ever been more efficient at producing imitation disciples than we are today. It, there's this environment that we, we somehow feel like we must seduce people. We must wash the word. We must tickle ears. There must be some you know, grandiose stage play or something like that before somebody will come to know the Jesus Christ. And, and I want to explain this to you, right? Because for many Christians, it can seem uh, disappointing or daunting or discouraging at times. Maybe even to the point where we feel like we just want to give up. You, you put in your best efforts in order to reveal to people the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there's just no response. The contemporary evangelical prognosis says it's our fault. And here's why. We're out of touch with the culture. We're not in style. We're not selling it right to the congregation. We don't conform to popular thinking. We're not connected with the people. The reality is this, listen to me very closely, despite your best effort, there are going to be those who will never produce fruit in their lives. We've been going through this gospel eldership thing. has been very revealing to me, the elders as well as the elder candidates. And in the very first chapter, it's extremely humbling. It talks about fears. What is your fear? And one of my greatest fears has been that I would, I would talk to somebody or a group of people or a congregation and they would be uninspired. They would just walk out and go, eh. And then the next question is, what does that reveal about your lack of faith in God? It's humbling to think, you know, I don't change people's hearts. I don't have that kind of power. God has that power to change hearts. But you see, we do have a responsibility. There is a sower to sow. There is a seed to be sown. But there is only one person who can change the heart, and that is our God. You see, there are four scenarios played out in this parable, and the result in three of them is unfinished faith that produces no fruit at all. Did you get me on that? That means one out of the four soils will be the only one that produces any kind of fruit at all. We know that true disciples have fruit. John 15 makes this abundantly clear, verses 1 through 6. If you are in Christ, you will have fruit. There will be evidence of Christ in your life. Now notice in the parable, the seed and the sower are not the focus of the parable. Right? Now, let me explain to you why. This is popularly known as the parable of the sower, and um, before you start to accuse me of changing the Bible, that header in the ESV, that's not in the original text, just so you know, okay? 
The parable of the sower is not in the original text. That's a title that a lot of the interpreters will put up there to help orient us. Um, and I think a more appropriate name for this parable is actually the parable of the soils because it is the soil that reveals to you the nature of the fruit that's going to be produced. What is said about the sower? Nothing, really. Nothing is mentioned about the clothes the sower is wearing, sort of bag the sower is carrying, the shoes of the sower. If you think for a minute that it's your style or your connected with, connectedness with cultural norms that's going to change anything, think again. Because it doesn't say clever sower. It doesn't say articulate sower. It doesn't say adept sower. Uh, culturally in tune sower. Uh, handsome sower. I mean, the, the, the naming, the conventions becomes limit, limitless, doesn't it? Nothing is said about the sower. It doesn't mean that the sower isn't important because I want you to understand that the sower must sow the seed. And there, there is an extreme importance to that. Because if the seed's not sown, then the word isn't going out into the world. The sower is incredibly important, and the sower must sow. Without sowing, there's no seed, there's no word. Without the seed, there's no fruit. The sower is the disciple of Jesus Christ. But you can limit it down because it doesn't say sowers, it says sower, which means that as disciples of Jesus Christ, God is actually sowing through us. I want to make sure that's clear. You do not sow the seed alone. God sows the seed through you. It's not about the technique of the sower. It's not about the intention of the sower. Any, any attempt to seek or sow apart from Jesus Christ is going to be a, a, a futile attempt on the part of the believer. Well, what about the seed? Is it the seed that makes a difference? The seed is revealed as the word of God. This is the saving gospel. This is the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of the fellowship, inviting people into a relationship with God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, we are begotten by the word. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, he's not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who comes to believe in the word of God. The seed is extremely important. The word is extremely important. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, and we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, listen to this, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So the issue then is not the sower. You don't have to modify the sower. The issue is not with the seed. We do such a tremendous disservice when we change the word of God. It is set, it is fixed, it is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he takes it so seriously. Do you see where I'm going with this? Like it can be a foolish thing to say that we have to change our style. Or much worse, the message. In order for someone to come to know Jesus Christ. Because the issue doesn't lie with the sower. There's only one possible sower, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. The issue is not with the seed, there is only one word that God provides us through his Bible. So what is it that makes the difference? It is this, the soil. The key to this parable is the soil. Matthew chapter 13 refers to the soil as the condition of the heart. The soil then is a heart issue. What we're talking about is a heart issue with the person. The result of all gospel proclamation by anybody and everywhere in the church is dependent on the condition of the heart. 
which only God can transform. Let's analyze the soils. This is the first soil. This represents the person with a hard heart. It's a concrete heart. There's no response at all. This represents the Pharisees and the outright rejectors of the gospel. It has no impact at all. Listen, get ready to receive that kind of soil in your life as you're presenting the gospel message. As a disciple, you will come among people. You present the word of God lovingly and with truth, and they go, no way. This is the condition of the heart that lies exposed and open for all to trample on. That's why it doesn't take long before Satan comes in and just takes the word away. It's never broken up. There's, there's no conviction rolled into the soil. There's no fear. There's no sweet realities of the love of God. We know these people, don't we? They're the ones that laugh at you. They're the ones who say, that's foolishness, what you're presenting. Or, on the other hand, those are those who say, I have no need of the gospel because I'm perfect. So you can very easily reject a gospel like that. This, honestly, is the only type of soil that we typically associate with an unbeliever. The one of the hardened heart. But remember, there are three soils that do not produce fruit. Which brings me to the second soil. This is the superficial and shallow individual. You know, there's dirt at the surface, and then nothing but bedrock underneath it. This represents the disciple that, that you know, in John chapter 6, they got their free meal. I'm back for the meal now. Oh, there's no meal. I'm out. Very superficial. It doesn't last long because there's no root. And as soon as the first sun comes out, it just dries out and withers away. This depicts a person who receives, that, who doesn't receive the word with joy, but with just shallow intentions. This might be like an emotional response, right? I mean, have, have you uh, witnessed or seen certain uh, church settings where, like, the, the, the lights just go really dim and then there's, like, lasers, you know? Uh, and, then, and then there's that guitar playing in the background. And, and uh, you just try and, like, you get to heart of the emotions and all that stuff. But then a little bit of heat comes their way on account of the word. And they're out. It could be that their self-interest wasn't met. Maybe the, the genuineness of their faith was finally tested. A tough moment comes their way and they bail out. Or, I see this one a lot, they hear a really hard teaching. And they say, I'm out. We have been called as ministers of the gospel to present the unadulterated word of God. There is going to be tough teachings that come your way. And we've been called to present them in such a fashion. There are people who want only the things that Jesus can offer. They just don't want Jesus. There are many people who associate themselves with Christianity. And they say that they believe in Jesus. They believe that he died they believe that he rose again. And that is a relatively easy thing for people to accept. What makes for false conversion is a failure to accept genuine repentance. I'm reminded of the church of Smyrna who underwent all kinds of persecution. Remember, And Jesus had very little to say in terms of, of, of bad things of that church. I mean, it was really just encouragement. And I'm convinced the reason for that is because they were being persecuted so much. Anybody who had no genuine and sincere repentance or relationship with Christ was already out the door. So all you have are these people who are just solid set, and they're saying, we're in it for the long haul. Maybe you've met people like that. 
They, they express such a genuine, it feels like such a genuine interest at first, and then they just walk away. Like, I've, I've witnessed that many times over the course of the last 13 years. People who say, I just love what God is doing here, and then like a year later, they completely disassociate themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, I, I call him the original Baptist, Charles Spurgeon. Yeah, that's my man. He said, there are people who come forward under an emotional appeal and then immediately go backward into their sin. They go into the inquiry room for five minutes and reject godliness the rest of their lives. And then there's the third soil. Those are those who are choked out by the thorns, right? That's the, that's the young, rich ruler. This represents the one who has heard the word, but their repentance is incomplete. It's the person who wants Jesus and the things of the world. They don't want just Jesus. They want the riches and they want the glory. Remember, Jesus said you can't serve God and money. This person who loves the world and everything in it and, and the worldly things become to them a lethal distraction to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the prosperity gospel. This is one that teaches you that you can have all the things that the world can have to offer and Jesus Christ, as if somehow he's a side note. But as I said earlier, the gospel never promises to give you what your sinful heart already desires. The distinguishing mark of a true disciple is not a love for things. It is a consuming love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there hasn't been any fruit yet, and I'm, I'm reminded of, a, uh, of an Instagram post that my wife shared with me. Nobody in this room? The, the Instagram post was a picture of this amazing car. It was a Corvette. It was like fully souped up. I mean, it was an awesome looking car. And the caption of it said, do you want to know the secret? Dot, 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 I pray. <laughs> I'm just going to be frank. That's for someone else to disciple. Because if I get involved in that person's life, I'm going to say, that's disgusting. I'm just going to outright say it. You know, maybe there's a gentler approach to that. We just read it this morning, right? <laughs> I don't think I'm the one called to that kind of gentleness. But it is, it's a disturbing thing to think that somehow God is a genie in a bottle. You just rub him the right way and out comes a car. <laughs> so what is the evidence of conversion? It's not an emotion. It's not a quick response. It's not an interest. It's not an outward appearance of happiness. It's not a desire to be blessed. You know, that health, wealth, prosperity gospel. So what is evidence of conversion? Jonathan Edwards put it this way, a humble, broken-hearted love for God. He said, there are plenty of people who have false affections for self-interest, but the saved have true and deep affections. They are marked by a holy life manifested in a holy love. They love God. They love Christ. Thus, they're pursuing the fulfillment of the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your height, heart, mind, and soul. Contemporary discipleship just lowers that standard just so greatly, in my opinion. But there are people who do respond appropriately. Those are the people who come to the narrow gate. Those are the ones who desire heaven, yes. They desire salvation, yes. They desire forgiveness. But they also desire to be delivered from the dominating power of sin in their lives. They desire all that is righteous and good and holy. They want to be delivered from the worldly system. These are the people who have good soil. Good soil is not natural. I mean, think about it, right? If, you, if you're tending to the garden, you don't just say, all right, I'm just going to throw some seed on there. We're good to go. 
I can't wait to see the produce. No, you are tilling the soil. There is work that's involved in it. And then when you throw the seed on there, it can actually take root. It can come up and out comes 30, 60, 100-fold fruit. Amazing. Who can do that? Who can till the soil like that? God. God tills soil like that. The fruit that results in, in, in this sort of situation is so staggering. It's like exponential. This offers to me great encouragement, um, especially when it comes to the subject of discipleship, because um, we often ask ourselves the question, what's up with all the rejections? Why are there so many superficial converts? And we ask ourselves the question, God, are you even with me as I'm presenting this discipleship? When God does the work, there is so much fruit to bear. It just releases you and relinquishes you of any responsibility in regard to saving people. But it doesn't relinquish you the responsibility of sowing the word, of performing the work of an evangelist. Well, I want to conclude with two questions for you this morning. What does discipleship look like in your life? Just evaluate yourself on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, on an annual basis, and ask yourself the question, what does discipleship look like in my life? What sort of spiritual gifts has God given you? Are you exercising those spiritual gifts? Or are you denying them? Or maybe you're jealous over someone else's spiritual gifts, and you tell yourself, that you just say, you know, I don't have that gift, so I'm not going to do it at all. You know, it's, it's, it's a gift God gave it to you as a measure of grace to be exercised for the glory of his kingdom work. Or to put it another way, in what ways are you making Jesus Christ preeminent? In what ways are you making Jesus Christ number one in your life? There is a blue bulletin that was placed in every, a blue card that was placed in every single one of the bulletins, okay? And if you are in a position right now where you are itching to serve God, you want to get more plugged in. There is something that, that's going on right now around Timberline that is extremely crucial, in my opinion, to discipleship. Because we know that coming on a Sunday morning is not sufficient to grow you and mature you in Christ. There must be more to it than just that. I'm not saying that Sunday morning isn't important. We lift our worship to God. There's edification that takes place. There's discipleship that's taking place. Don't get me wrong. But is that it? There are people who are meeting throughout the course of the week in smaller settings. They're building strong relationships with one another. They're challenging themselves. They're testing one another. They're asking tough questions. And they're having tough conversations. Because we're all surrounded right now by a world. We've been called to go, to, to go, into, the, to go into the world, but not be of the world, right? And so there's an aspect by which you have a, a role and a responsibility in this thing we call discipleship, both for those that you're going to be discipling outside of the church as well as in the church. And so if you're not plugged into a table group ministry, this is my shameless plug, okay, because I understand the value that this brings. Get plugged in. Um, fill out that card and just, you know, even if it just means, like, I'm going to try this out one, I'm just going to try it out one time. And just watch what God is going to do in, the, in terms of discipleship. I'm, not, I'm reminded, back in the day, my wife invited me to a small group. I, I am, believe it or not, I'm very introverted. Um, after I'm done today, I'm going to go take a bubble bath. <laughs> That's what that feels like, you know? And so she invited me to a small group setting one time, and, and I'm just nervous like crazy because I don't know how to interact with people. I'm socially awkward and everything else. 
and she brought me into this thing, and I'll never forget, you know, she's, she's over there intermingling with the women, and I'm just pretending like I'm trying to connect with the men over here on the side. And I look over, and she does one of these things, eh? <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, I'm so done with this, I'm done. Uh, but over time, what happened was God, God did something in that. Relationships were formed, and people actually, what happened was, um, this is interesting, people actually identified what my spiritual gifts were. Things that I hadn't even considered before. And, and, and they encouraged me and they said, you must, you must exercise this gift that God has given you. And I denied it for like five years, didn't I, Lord? Five years, I didn't hardly do anything. Until one day I was kind of, for, like my hand was forced in it. In a very special way. But God works through his people. And so I encourage you, if you're not already plugged into a small group, get plugged into a small group. But listen, table groups are not the only thing going on around here. There is, there is on the backside an option, I want to serve. And maybe you don't know what that looks like. And so I want to encourage you to fill that out. I want, you to encourage, I want to encourage you to, to mark that box. And even in the comments, just say, I don't know what I need to do. But I want to be a part of this great thing that God has, has called me to do. Um, and then I just want to say one more thing, and then I'll close in prayer. Um, for you women in the room um, who are mothers, I don't want to dismiss this as, as a work of the kingdom of God. I don't think we do this enough in the church. Your ministry is extremely important in the family. When I say get plugged into discipleship, your family is discipleship for you. Do you understand me? Do you get that? I don't want you to feel guilty because you're not, you're not plugged in in like 10 other ways on top of mothering. I'm convinced the hardest job in all the world is being a mom. I, I had to fill in for one day, and I was like, I'm done with it. I, I resigned. I don't want to be a mom. Anyway, there's so much. There, the, the, the opportunities are just absolutely limitless, aren't they? Let's just pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this community. I thank you for the leadership in this church, Pastor Nick. The sort of discipleship he brings to the table, Lord. He's an example for all of us. And uh, may you continue to strengthen him. I know that it is, it's not an easy thing to, to be a disciple. And I, I speak for all of us disciples in this room right now, Lord. It can seem daunting and discouraging at times, but, but you offer your word as a tremendous encouragement to us. And so may you be blessed and honored in the things that are going to take place throughout the course of this day, throughout the course of the week, Lord, that you would offer to us the convictions that need to take place in order that we would change our hearts towards you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.